Hi, everybody, and we are recording today's episode of Adapting the Future of Jewish Education on December 1st, 2022. We're having a conversation today about technology, which is an issue that we have explored before in the past, but I really wanted to return to talk about the impact or the potential impact of digital technology with today's guest, Barry Joseph, because I think in some ways in the past, we've shortchanged the potential impact that technology can should or ought to be having in the educational spheres in which many of us work. Often in the past, we've spoken specifically about digital education being a means to an end, and it's the technology that helps us to get somewhere else. But I wanted to explore today a bit further what it is inherently about some of the technologies that we're seeing today, which are fundamentally changing the ways in which classrooms and learning environments operate, and also beginning to change the ways in which learning is taking place today. And you'll see the conversation today with Barry says that if the learners are being accustomed or acculturated to a new way of learning, obtaining and utilizing information, then we too as Jewish educators also need to adapt accordingly. What's going to be needed to invest in Jewish education in relation to technology moving forward is a different mindset for stakeholders who want to invest in this endeavor. And what I mean by that is that these things are not going to come around in a three-month or a six-month or even a one-year investment. That if we want to invest seriously in digital education and digital technology, we need to be in this for the long haul with a mindset that not everything that we'll invest in will work straight away, but that we can continually learn from what we're doing and investing in. And that digital education is actually here to stay. It's not just a fad although its form might change and alter over time. I'm sure you'll be as engrossed as I was by my conversation with Barry. I hope you can learn something from it as well. The show notes will also give you ample opportunity to explore further some of the things that we're talking about. Sit back and enjoy and explore today's episode of Adapting with myself and Barry Joseph. This is Adapting, the future of Jewish education, a podcast from the Jewish Education Project where we explore the big questions, challenges, and successes that define Jewish education. I'm David Breifman. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Adapting, the Future of Jewish Education. And I'm really pleased to be talking today with my friend and colleague, Barry Joseph, about digital engagement and Jewish education. Look, for those of you who have been following this podcast for a while know that we've been speaking about technology and digital engagement for a while and its potential impact on Jewish education. But I want to try and use today's episode to get behind the scenes, and I could think of no one better than to speak today with Barry about these issues. Barry's had more than 25 years of experience using digital media to advance his clients' missions and help reach their business objectives. In his years of consulting, Barry has used his energy, his networks, and strategic thinking to help improve the customer experience, which we will talk about a lot in today's episode as well, with organizations like Global Kids, a New York City-based after-school organization, as well as the American Museum of America. History and Girl Scouts of the USA. Barry, thanks so much for joining us for today's episode of Adapting. David, such a pleasure to be here with you and your listeners. Thank you. Let's get going by talking broadly about the ways in which digital technology has impacted education over the last decade or so. And I guess what I'm really asking is, has digital technology in fact impacted the way we educate our youth or are we still educating in much the same way, just using, you know, shinier tools and objects? David, that's such an important question. Uh, you know, when you ask me that question, what comes to mind is about four types of people. And there's somewhat of a generalization, but I think it's useful for thinking about this very question. So looking back 10 years ago, we can look at two extremes of educators. One extreme, we might as well just call them the Luddites. They hate technology. They don't see a role for it in the classroom. They might have all sorts of good reasons, but they do not want to see it in their classroom and they'd rather quit than adapt it. 
on the other extreme, we might as well just call those the cyberpunks. They love technology. They think the entire educational system is oppressive. It's entirely structured against the needs of young people. Technology is going to let young people be able to learn it in their own pace, in their own ways, follow their own interests. And between those two, to use some terms I'm going to use for our conversation today, let's talk about the human-centered teacher. The human-centered teacher is not a Luddite. They understand that technology can have value, but the human always comes first. Their role is to be connected one-to-one with their students. And technology is seen as an obstacle. Maybe it's seen as a challenge to their pedagogy. But every once in a while, yes, there's that one tool they want to bring into the classroom. Maybe it's some kind of quiz on a Kahoot. Maybe it's it's some videos from BrainPop. But even though they appreciate and value how unique and special it is, that's all they want to do. One tool or maybe two. Then you have the group that I would call the tech-enhanced teacher. They're not cyberpunks. They, they understand the importance of being together in person. They want to build those relationships with their students. That's where learning can happen. That's where growth can happen. But they also appreciate the technology can engage young people in powerful and unique ways, that it can teach them skills and literacies that are important, that it can help them as an educator make their work easier, collecting homework from young people, being able to help someone who's absent have a sense of what was going on. And they use technology as much as they can. So 10 years ago, that first group, those Luddites, they would say the idea of moving education online, it was insane. It's never going to work and it's not going to help anybody. And then the people who were in the tech enabled, they're fighting what I would say the good fight. They were trying to convince their administrators that there was a role for technology, whether it was games or something else or videos in their classroom. They were fighting to get technology available for young people to be on computers, to address inequity issues around Wi-Fi access, to make sure everyone had access to these experiences. And yet they were constantly having a battle every day to even show there was value. So let's jump forward now 10 years. How did the pandemic change all this? Well, I think we saw the first group learn that they were wrong right? That they might be right that they hated using technology and there's values of being in person. But we saw that when we had to force everything going online, the whole system didn't fall apart. And as a result, I think many of those people became those human-centered teachers. They said, fine, fine, you convinced me. I still only want to use one or two pieces of technology in my classroom, but I won't use anything else. So we had a major shift there. And then for the tech-enabled teachers, they didn't have to fight so hard. People were suddenly shoveling technology towards them, maybe too much technology. They were shoveling money to get hotspots in in communities that were rural. And so we started seeing that they didn't have to fight that fight so much against the system to use technology, but now had to fight within the system to use it more effectively and more equitably. And then, of course, we had the cyberpunks who, like I said, seemed crazy 10 years ago. But sometime in March 2020, suddenly they were the heroes. Sites like Outschooled, which created an online marketplace for educators to connect with with students, and it's a whole new institutional learning environment. They grew by 10% in one month. The number of teachers who were using the system, who are entrepreneurs, the number of students who are learning. And looking now, even two and a half years later, my son, who's about to prepare for studying the SAT, sure, I can spend thousands of dollars and pay for a tutor or for free. My son can go to Khan Academy and not only have a fully online self-directed experience, it will connect with his PSAT scores to give him a personalized learning experience. So it is still crazy to think about getting rid of schools, but we see so much happening now in this new space of what was seen as this kind of crazy, fantastical cyberspace world that people are still figuring out what to do. So I want to 
break this down a little bit for our listeners because in some ways um, what you're suggesting might have been the same sort of pattern that has happened throughout history. I can imagine now when you're using the word digital technology and I've referenced this before, like when the first teacher brought the blackboard into the classroom or the first teacher brought in the radio or the VCR or, you know, the, the slide projector, when a different technology was brought in, you might have had a similar sort of discussion taking place and yet education sort of stayed the same. Classroom, chairs, desk, teacher in front of classroom, teaching curriculum. But there is something different about the technology that we're now seeing, which is not just adding a new something, a new item, a new object, a new software into the classroom or the learning experience, but it is actually changing the dynamic of learning as well, or it can potentially change the dynamic of learning. I want you to talk a bit about digital education today and how you think the dynamic of teaching and learning could be taking place and could be changing as well in this world that we currently live in. David, I really appreciate you're talking about not just digital technology, but technology and historicizing it. Because of course, a pencil is a type of technology and education has always explored the opportunities of technology and at the same time been afraid of how it might transform the current educational systems. So over the course of the 20th century, we see all sorts of things that are changed inside learning. But often when we move into not just technology, but specifically digital technology, its disruptive potential is so much greater. So let's look at gaming, for example. I've been involved in games-based learning for over two decades. And my boss at the time, Carol Artigiani at Global Kids, she would say 20 years ago when she was talking with principals about whether we can bring our gaming programs into the school, she felt like she was asking them if we could bring porn into the classroom because that's, people didn't really understand the value of games or gaming at the time. When that was the context, it was very limiting for us about how much we could push the educational potential of games, whether it was something that young people were playing, designing, critiquing, or writing about. And then slowly something started to change. Some of it was that younger teachers were now gamers themselves. Some of it was that people who were older and didn't play games aged out. And some of it was just the reality that suddenly everyone was playing games, whether it was on their console, Minesweeper on their desktop, or you know playing Angry Birds on their phone or Wordle today, right? Games are now part of something we all feel more comfortable with. And a lot of the hysteria around it has disappeared. And as a result, the disruptive potential of games has started to impact and change what gaming system looks like itself. 20 years ago, if you're talking about games in the classroom, maybe we're talking about young people designing a physical board game or maybe playing an educational game. Now you can have young people literally designing digital games. For many years, they were using something like Scratch, just somewhat like an animated system. But now you have very powerful tools. And in fact, you have teachers teaching the very coding and the very tool sets that professional game designers are using to design their own games. So what we've seen, I think, with digital technology, and I'm using gaming as just one of many examples, is that it has allowed some of the disruptive potential to help model what good learning and good pedagogy can look like in an educational context. And many innovative and mainstream educators themselves are picking that up and adapting it to shape and shift what learning looks like in their classrooms. All right. So you went there really quickly and I want to like backtrack just one second. Okay. You went straight to gaming, which I think is something that a lot of people are familiar with. Just define for the audience here, what's a game <laughs> and then the difference between what's gaming and now they make the connection between what does gaming look like or what could it look like in education? Because I think those three things are really different. And I think often people get a bit maybe even freaked out because they sort of lump them all into one bucket. So let's talk about games and gaming. So starting with the obvious, right? Game is a noun and gaming is a verb. So what is game as a noun? It means it's a product. It's a game that's developed by a commercial company or something that could be even made in the classroom. And it is a distinct element. But looking at it still as a noun, you have to still situate it in a broader ecosystem. When you talk about a board game, uh, someone like Eric Zimmerman, who's a Lidologist, a gaming academic and a game designer, will say Monopoly doesn't start when you first roll the die. It starts when you open up the box and start arguing about the rules. 
which is to say that games are situated as an object within a social context. And that context isn't just the rules within the game itself, but when you start getting into the video game world, the videos that you might watch of people playing games, the fan art that people create, of the microtransactions and the economic systems that exist around them, the competitive systems that exist around esports. I mean, I can go on and on in music, in graphic design. There's a whole rich ecosystem of things that connect with young people in games that isn't just about the game itself. Gaming is a verb. So it's a thing one does. But what I'm more interested in gaming is not just as a verb, but as an attitude, as a way of thinking about one's connection with the world. Games and gaming are part of play and being playful. And so games are one way of setting up sets of rules for people to engage with each other, setting up artificial constraints towards goals which don't always make sense if you actually want it to be effective. Again, as Eric Zimmerman quotes from a text from the 70s, if you wanted to stick a little ball in a hole, you would pick it up and put it in a hole. You wouldn't put a sand trap between you and the hole, make you really distant from that location, give you an odd object to hit it with and put some trees between you. Like that doesn't make sense. But of course, golfing works great as a game. And so gaming then becomes a way of thinking about how does one approach the world in a way to understand and explore it. Gaming lets you understand systems by understanding how a system is made of elements that relate to each other in a dynamic way. And sometimes gaming or a gaming perspective is the only way to understand a system from the inside out. Gaming can be about how you connect with people and creating ways to keep engaged with others and not just following the rules that are given to you, but co-owning the rules, like arguing about those monopoly rules so that everyone can be engaged throughout and open to anyone who wants to play keeping it accessible to everyone and adjusting as the game players change. So gaming for me is a way of of approaching the world. And when you think about it in an educational context, you can also be thinking about, well, all right, we're now talking about maybe something called gamification, where it's taking elements from gaming and applying them in other contexts. So grades are already a type of gamification. It's a way of rating people within a space, letting them compare themselves against each other and against themselves. Oh, I got an 85 on my test last time. I want to get an 87 next time. So that's bringing things from games and creating internal and external motivation that we've learned from games and putting them into an educational context. So gaming and gamification is nothing new in the educational context, but especially with digital gaming and what we've learned from it, we're seeing all sorts of new ways to bring the power and potential of gamification into an educational context. Now, I want to say something which I don't mean as being disrespectful either to you or our listeners, and that is that I don't expect everybody listening to this episode to fully understand what it is you're actually talking about, because in some ways, it's something that you can only really get a grasp of once you start experiencing it for yourself and becoming immersed in all of what you're beginning to discuss in terms of the power and the potential of games. And I think what you referenced before, that as more educators and more learners grow up as gaming being part of their normative experience, this is going to be infiltrating all of education anyway. But I think the point which I really, really want to pick up on here is that in the past, I've often spoken about, and even one of our previous guests we had talking about technology, uh, Russell Neese, we were very clear to be saying that digital technology is never the ends unto itself. It's always a means until those greater learning objectives. And I think here you add a bit more nuance to that. Of course, there should be learning objectives and outcomes, and we should always be striving for those things. But you're also suggesting that within digital technology today, there is some inherent value in and of itself, which we should not be afraid of exploring with our students and learners as we move forward. Am I getting it right on that one? That's right, David. And I think it's helpful to think about how our relationship with technology is not just, as you said, to get somewhere. It is an extension of who we are if it's used right. And an example that's often shared is when the first really powerful computer beat some of our best chess champions in the world and what that meant and how they responded. 
So I think that was the deep blue computer from IBM in the 90s. And I think that was Gary Kasparov. So people like to look at that and say, ah, here's an example of where computers have crossed a certain threshold and now they're better than us. And Gary Kasparov could have said that's what it meant, but that's not how he responded. He started holding competitions that allowed people to bring computers with them as collaborators in their chess championships. And people could also choose not to use computers or just the computers could run. And it turned out that the most powerful players in that room were the people who were collaborating with the computer. Because it wasn't that the computers were better than the humans per se. It was that a human empowered by the power of computers could go even further than the computer by itself or the human. And it's that hybridization that I look to when I think about the role of digital technology for young people and what it means to empower them in their lives. Yes, I want a young person to be able to search effectively and be able to find real information online that will help inform them and for them to have the digital literacy skills required to think critically about what they're finding to be able to tell if it's something that's real or not and how to be able to ask the key questions. But at the same time, it's not just about being able to get the data they need. It's about thinking about their ability to process information has now expanded. Their ability to store the information they need, not in their head, but in distributed places like online and knowing how to find them when they need it makes them more effective researchers and thus better able to address any topics they're interested in in the future. So I think there's skills you learn by working with digital tools that make you um, more enhanced as a learner and as a communicator. And it also can make you more effective as a human being if you're using them in the right ways. I'll use a specific example and we can reference that. So uh, there's a state that I um, spend a, a, about half a year working with their educators to get a better understanding of how they're using technology. And in that state, I spoke with someone who was a big flipped educator and it was a craft class. So it was like pottery and jewelry. And what he used to do before the pandemic was have the youth do the creation of the craft, you know, making the jewelry, the pottery. They would do that at home and he would post videos online to teach them the techniques they needed to do it. He wouldn't teach them in class where they didn't have the tools and then have them go home and try and remember it. He gave them the information when they needed it, which is when they're at home ready to do the work. And then when they would come back together into the classroom, he would then talk to them about the challenges they had. He would critique their work. He would have their work be visible to the others so they can show them to each other. So that's an example of a flipped environment where the core learning happened outside the classroom at the time that the youth were ready to learn when it was best for them in home, but it was still happening in a group context that still privileged being in person with the teacher. So what does that mean to go through an experience like that? Not just for that class, but as a learner. That teaches me as a learner that I get to learn when I'm at my best. I get to be in charge of when I learn. I get to be in charge of my pacing. If the video that the teacher showed me didn't make sense, I can go back and watch it again. I can't pause my teacher when they're in person. You know what? Maybe they're going too slow. I can watch it at two times the speed or three. And if I can collect the information that way, I can get the material much faster. It means that I get to co-collaborate in the directing of the of the pedagogy. And I get to presume that I am part of that process. I don't completely control it. My teacher's still creating the materials. They're giving me the assignments, but I am a collaborator with them in that process. So regardless of what I learned in that particular class about, say, pottery, I am learning a new way of being a learner in the world where I am empowered. So when I'm no longer in a classroom setting, I get to transfer these skills into a type of lifelong learning. And I get to bring those expectations into other learning environments to say, hey, I expect more from you, educator, in my college classroom or wherever I'm doing professional development. I expect to be doing this with you. I know myself better than you. I know how I learn. And it is my responsibility to know those things. Hang on one second, because I think you've, you've hit on something which is important here as well. And we could substitute pottery with algebra or we'd substitute it with Torah. And you're saying something about the learner having a bit more agency, but you're also saying something really important about the teacher. 
that the teacher is no longer needing to be the fountain of all of the knowledge and the content. They need to have a different set of skills, which enables and empowers the learner to learn at their very best, which is, I think, probably the biggest flip taking place in what you're saying in that who owns the content or what's the most important part of the educational equation? Well, the learner is the most important part. The content is something which can be packaged in a video or in a more in a more concrete way. Technology just does it in a neat way that everybody can access. And maybe the democratization here is really important. But the teacher's role has fundamentally flipped from what it once used to be in the, the so-called academy or the classroom. That, that's the phrase that I'm sure many of your, your listeners are used to, moving from the sage on the stage to the guide on the side. And that was something I first heard 20 years ago. But what's new is that we have shifted to allowing, in some environments, not all, more of an opportunity for the teachers who want to be the guide on the side to play that role. But so often, the requirements for teachers, the expectations for what they can use in the classroom, for how they're allowed to deliver the material, they're forced to be that sage on the stage, even though they can tell it's not the most effective way to engage with their students or to teach the content. There's also something about flipped learning in a Jewish learning context that gives it a little bit more extra heft. Why? Well, if you look at congregational schools, we're getting less and less time with young people coming together in that physical space. What flipped learning does is not only empower learners and expand where learning is happening, it also can expand the time they're spent learning if it motivates them to be engaged with the learning process. So when we're trying to figure out, oh my gosh, there's so much that our kids are competing with between theater and after school programs and sports and how do we get them on the Sunday or an after-school day during the week. Flip learning and Jewish learning means expanding our opportunities to reach into young people's lives, give them a learning experience that is more aligned with how they relate to digital tools and the associated learning potentials, uh, and expand our, our opportunities at Jewish educational institutions to ex- bring more educational learning into the lives of young people. So it's an ongoing battle, um, but I've seen a lot of movement where it feels like to me more and more teachers understand and appreciate that that's the direction we need to move in. The systems have yet to catch up. Some are innovative or have freedom to do that, and you'll see more of this happening there, and the impact is going to be tremendous for learners, for teachers, and for the system overall. So I want to move a bit to talk about the Jewish community and digital education. I guess this is a podcast about Jewish education. I should also mention that Barry sits on the board of the Covenant Foundation, which is a foundation that seeks to give many grants and research opportunities or proposal opportunities or people to bring their ideas into fruition, some of which involve technology. So I think Barry's got a fairly good grasp of what's taking place in the Jewish educational world as it relates to technology. So I want to ask you what you see taking place in the Jewish world today in relation to digital education. And I ask this with a bit of a bias, I I guess, um, and that is the perception, or maybe it's a reality, that the Jewish world always seems to be a decade behind, maybe even more in the general trends of general education when it comes to technology. Now, that may or may not be true. I've been to many public schools lately where technology is certainly not where I thought it might be or where it could be as well. But I want to get your assessment about Jewish education today and where you think it stands in relation to the use or non-use of digital and technology in its educational forums. When I look at the state of Jewish education across North America, it's not hard for me to point to some remarkable innovations that I see happening, whether it's a project-based Jewish day school in New Jersey, uh, a school in, in the West Coast that integrated makers and maker spaces with Jewish learning, organizations that have really embraced an environmental message, whether it's a learning that happens in a camp setting during the year or people who, who have integrated uh, environmentalism and a connection with, with the earth into their Jewish learning, to organizations that have really taken a fully embodied approach that are integrating you know, things like yoga uh, uh, and other body, mind-body practices as the way to teach Jewish identity and Jewish learning. They're out there and they're around. When I look at them, I see them as examples of educators taking 
what's innovative out in the world. And we see, for example, Truvi, which is Jewish Education Project launch. We see that as examples, in my perspective, people seeing what's out in the world and moving it into a Jewish context. And that should be um, increasingly appreciated. There should be more focus on those and people should learn the lessons from both what's working and what isn't working. What I'm also hearing you saying, David, is what we want to see is the inverse. We want to see people developing new ways to do something innovative in the Jewish learning space that will have impact in the rest of the world. So I saw, for example, uh, an Orthodox day school in uh, Brooklyn that was going all out with games-based learning. The young people were not only designing board games as vehicles for teaching Jewish values and Jewish history, but making them as products that can be sold back out into the community. So no more bake sale. They're now selling their board games. Uh, And so talk about young people getting to have an impact, not just making a product, right? But really exploring how games can teach. So there are some examples like that we can see as well. I think at the end of the day, if we say who's having more of an influence, innovations out in the wide world coming into the Jewish learning space or the other way around, I think it's probably even and equal. I don't think that the secular learning environment is any more or less innovative than the Jewish learning space. I'd love to see more innovation happening in the Jewish learning space and having it spread more, but I think we're doing all right. When you look at something like micro-credentials, which is a way of rewarding young people, not with grades, but um, acknowledging the actual skills and knowledge and abilities that are, that are built and letting them choose their own pathways to earn those marks of achievement. Doing that in the digital space happened around the same time in the Jewish world as it did in the secular world, but it went very fast in the Jewish world. Uh, it started in New Orleans, it moved to Atlanta. Uh, soon there was professional development for educators who wanted to use badging systems in the Jewish context uh, about eight years ago, all around the country. And now a new book just came out, which is designed for statewide education systems in the secular space to make badges. So this is an example for me of when the Jewish community was a little bit ahead, but then it dropped the ball and the rest of the secular world picked up. So it's not either or, it's a back and forth. We learn from each other. We'll keep challenging each other. um, And we'll keep trying to, in the end, figure out what are the right innovations for us to focus on? How do we learn those lessons? And how do we bring them to scale and share them around the country? So I want to ask you the almost final question here, and that is that when you do see something on the horizon which you think is going to work, you and I know this because we've had some pretty big conversations almost like we know that we needed to invest in more apps. So we knew that we needed to invest in micro-credentialing, but the Jewish community is not really structured to invest in these things. It doesn't have a really good track record of investing in technology in the way that it needs to do so. The Jewish community, the funding world, the the structures of foundations, federations, philanthropy is really interested in like, what can I do for the next year, sometimes two or three years to try and see if this program or this intervention will work. With technology, we need a totally different mindset in terms of investment. And I'm wondering if you can like, if you were to have the ear of some potential investors in Jewish education, like what would be the recommendation that you would make to them in terms of like, how do you want them to be investing further in technology so they could impact Jewish education in a more fruitful way than it has been in the last period of time that you and I have both been exposed to? David, I think you hit the nail on the head. When you go back to what I said earlier about the innovations one can look at within Jewish learning, Normally, what would happen over time is the innovation would drift away for whatever reason, and then leadership would happen in the secular world. That happens because it rarely gets taken to scale, because it requires investment, technologies, and systems to support that technology that cut across the entire system. Not one day school, not one congregational school, not one camp. And the Jewish funding world isn't built around supporting it in just the way you described. So we will never, ever get in the Jewish educational spaces that kind of embedded digital-informed innovation 
that can really transform the learning unless that kind of investment and support can be in place. Whether it's thinking about micro-credentialing systems that cut across learning environments, whether it's Jewish digital learning tools or gaming tools designed to connect with Jewish learning and empowering both play and creation, or whether it's something we haven't even envisioned yet. So if I had that opportunity to have that conversation you just described, what I would say is we would need a certain type of Manhattan Project where the first step would be identifying what is the right area to invest in. Is it AI? Is it games-based learning? Is it micro-credentialing? What's the one thing that will have the biggest impact and have the greatest chance of success, meet the greatest needs, and is recognized as something that will be welcomed into the system to be pushed for over five years? And don't fund everything else. Just do that one thing and do it right. And then figure out from that process how to continue to identify what that next piece of digital technology would be, what we're trying to disrupt, and what we want to establish as a result when that disruption takes hold by creating new, more effective, and engaging models of Jewish learning. And what do you say when they turn around to you and say something to the effect of, by the time it takes me to invest in that particular technology, there'll be something new and shinier on the horizon and all of my original investment will be will be out the door? New and shiny doesn't mean you made a mistake. That just means that you're conscious that you're developing something on an innovation curve where there's always going to be new things. We will create something during this period to learn how to address that shiny thing the next time around and figure out what's the right one to do. But if you only go for that new shiny thing, you're going to end up with spending a lot of time investing in something that might not be the right product, might not be the right project, might not be meeting the right set of needs, and will eventually not be replicated as you move on to the next shiny things. Shiny things are only interesting because they give you a sense of what that next future thing might be. But you should always be a few steps back from that cutting edge, even a few steps back from the bleeding edge and not even be at the cutting edge, but be a few steps behind that. So you've seen that the thing you're investing on already has some traction, already has taken hold and is the right thing to invest in while the next things come in and try and compete with that thing you're building. Yeah, it's going to change. That's okay. But you want to build on something that is going to give you the best chance of success because you have enough indicators out in the world. And yes, pay attention to those shiny new things, but don't let them be a distraction. I think I want to use that as a clarion call for anyone listening today who considers themselves to be an investor in Jewish education, that when we're talking about flipping the paradigm of what it's going to take to invest in Jewish education moving forward, that not everything is going to be solved in one type of intervention. We're not going to learn everything straight away. We need to amend our mindset to be able to fail forward or to fail fast forward. Whatever the analogy that we need to use is going to be, but when it comes to digital investment, I'm just concerned and I want to put it out there really strongly that we need to be at the head of the ahead of some curve, at least moving forward, because our kids are already there. And if we keep offering them second-rate offerings when it comes to Jewish education, they're going to look the other way because it's not going to be up to the standards that they're beginning to experience in the rest of their lives. And Barry, I think today's conversation really shines a light, really tells everybody here quite clearly that technology really does have the power when used in the right ways to really help transform education in general, in our case, Jewish education specifically. So I really want to thank you, Barry, for for sharing all of your thoughts and wisdom and experience with us today. And hopefully this will be a bit of a oomph for the entire field to start really trying to embrace Jewish education's use of technology in different and more exciting ways. So thank you very much for joining us here today. But before we go, as I do with all of my guests, I would like to ask you if you have the opportunity to pay tribute to an educator in your life who has played a significant role in helping you develop into who you are, who would that educator be and what would you like to pay tribute to them for? When it comes to an educator who influenced me, I want to talk about two briefly, one in Jewish education and one without, and they're, they're both unique in their own ways. Um, the first one is Carolyn Starman Hessel. Carolyn Starman Hessel created the sixth grade program in my temple. We, it was called Kibbutz. And everyone was excited in the approach to Kibbutz. We knew it was different from everything else. We didn't know how, 
We just knew it was super special. And it was the first time I had Jewish learning that felt like it was designed around my needs. And I can remember all these years later, many of the things we did in that program. Carolyn was no longer running it by the time I was of age to go into it. I only knew she created it because 30 years later, she emailed me. Why she emailed me? Because I wrote an article about Seltzer. And she thought there should be a book about Seltzer for a number of reasons. If you don't recognize her name, she's the person who created the Jewish Book Council Network. She's been called the Oprah of Jewish books. And she also has a multiple generation family association with Seltzer. And she was going to help me. And she did. And the first time we met, it turned out that I lived a block away from her growing up and that she went to my temple and she created this uh, kibbutz program. So I actually got to thank her as my adult life. And then she inspired me to become an author. I'm working on my fourth book now. Seltzertopia was my first in 2018. So I thank her in all of my books. And it is so special for me as an adult to not only have a relationship with this person who influenced me in a remote way when I was a young person, but to continue to have her influencing my life today and to giving her my appreciation. The second person I'm going to mention is Eric Zimmerman. And I'm holding up for David, the, the book that just came out a few days ago, the Rules We Break. And I recommend that to anyone who's interested in beginning to think about games and play in an educational context. I met Eric Zimmerman almost 20 years ago when I worked with his company at the time, Game Lab, to develop the first educational game that I ever worked on. Eric started the uh, game design program at NYU. He was one of the, the co-developers and founders, and he's one of the lead ludologists I mentioned earlier in this program, a, a gaming academic. Uh, he, with Katie Salen, produced the seminal uh, game design textbook an associated reader. And my collaboration with him was as colleague, but it was also with him as mentor and me learning from him about how you think about game design, how you think about gaming, social content and educational context in games and the role that games play in people's lives and how you can teach this, how you think hard about something that's very fun and light. Um, and so I want to honor Eric as well. Barry, thank you so much. And I think even in your tribute to these educators in your life, you have made us all uh, remember how important it is to basically take the time to acknowledge those folks in your life who have made a difference as well. And your encounter with that person later on in life, I think is a reminder as well that you never quite know when you're going to be making an impact on someone's life. So for all of you out there who are educators today, sometimes they're the expected contacts and influences you have, and sometimes they're the unintended ones. Just keeps you on your toes all the time, but also is a good reminder that your effect and impact as educators is often well beyond what you might be initially able to see. So Barry, thank you so much for joining us here today on our episode of Adapting. I really learned so much from you, not just now, but I'm always, you've been a teacher, a colleague, a friend of mine for many years as we've traveled this journey in digital education together. And I really wanted to thank you for sharing of your wisdom with all of our listeners today. David, it's always such a pleasure to talk with you. It's a special honor to get to do it in front of a public audience to the podcast. And I want to let those know who'd like to read my writings on these topics just to go to my website, barryjoseph.com. And you can go to my blog from there or see the books I have on the topic as well. Perfect. So thank you very much. And as always, I want to thank the production team of today's episode, Dina Nussenbaum and Miranda Lapidus. The show's executive producers are myself, Karen Cummins and Nessa Lieben. And as always, our show is engineered and edited by Nathan J. Vaughan of NJV Media. If you enjoyed this episode of Adapting and the season in total, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and even better still, share it with a friend. And I'm sure there are many of you out there who have people involved in education and Jewish education who would like to know how to use digital technology more in their work. As always, you can learn more about the Jewish Education Project by visiting our website at jewishedproject.org. 
There you can also see a link to our educator resource portal, which will show you educators more tools that you can use that utilize technology in your work. You can learn more about our mission, our history, and our staff there as well, as well as previous episodes of Adapting, which are all there for you to look at and to listen to. As always, we are a proud partner of UJA Federation of New York, who has been a longtime supporter of us at the Jewish Education Project, utilizing digital technologies to advance our work. Thanks everyone for listening today.